2: This is what it takes to enter a facility where they manufacture microchips. I'm Christine. The tiny semiconductors that power everything from smartphones to automobiles to fighter jets. Problem is, there's a shortage of them revealing a serious national security issue.
3: 25 years ago, the United States produced 37 percent of the world's semiconductor manufacturing. In the U.S., today that number has declined to just 12 percent.
2: Doesn't sound good. We're all going against the wind. The
4: wind's 120 knots from the west. Okay, that thing, dude.
5: To the Pentagon, these are known as unidentified aerial phenomena. But what they are and where they come from remain a mystery even after a government investigation. What do you think when you see something like
6: this? This is a difficult one to explain. You have rotation, you have high altitudes, you have propulsion, right? I don't know, I don't know what it is, frankly.
7: Sometimes athletes do remarkable things that have nothing to do with sports. And the comeback of Alex Smith fits that description like few things we have ever seen. What is a
8: compound spiral fracture? He had a fracture that extended from his ankle joint up to his knee joint, so it spiraled all the way up the tibia, and then he had a piece of bone sticking out of his skin. Here we go. Tonight, a story about character from our nation's
0: capital. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper.
7: I'm Nora O'Donnell.
0: I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight...
4: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
2: Car companies across the globe have had to idle production and workers because of a shortage of semiconductors, often referred to as microchips or just chips. They're the tiny operating brains inside just about every modern device, like smartphones, hospital ventilators, even fighter jets. As we first reported in May, the pandemic sent chip demand soaring unexpectedly as we bought computers and electronics to work, study, and play from home. But while more and more chips are needed in the U.S., fewer and fewer of them are manufactured here. Intel is the biggest American chip maker. Its most advanced fabrication plant, or FAB for short, is located outside Phoenix, Arizona. New CEO, Pat Gelsinger, invited us on a tour to see how incredibly complex the manufacturing process is. All ready to go. First, we had to suit up to avoid contaminating the fab. Head cover on. Perfect. Bunny suit, zipped. Goggles, Okay. gloves, Good. ready to go. I'm Christine. Everything
3: in this environment is controlled.
2: Together, we stepped into a place with some of the most sophisticated new technology on Earth. I need to ask you why we're all yellow. Yellow filters remove light rays that are harmful to the process. Overhead, a computerized highway transports materials from one machine to the next. The process involves thousands of steps where layer upon layer of microscopic circuitry is etched onto these silicon plates that are then chopped up into chips that will end up in, say, your computer. Making just one can take six months.
3: You see, each one of these is a a chip.
2: I'm surprised. I thought chips were minute.
3: Well, each one of these chips has maybe a billion transistors on it.
2: Oh, my goodness.
3: So there's a billion little circuits inside of it that are all on one of these chips, and then one wafer could have a hundred or a thousand chips on it.
2: Intel's goal is to keep shrinking the transistor's size so you can pile more of them on a chip to make it more powerful and work faster.
3: You know, every one of these is laying down circuits that are so much smaller than anything, your hair, you know, any other part of human existence. You know, a COVID particle is way bigger than one of the lines that we're creating here.
2: How much does this fab
3: cost? Ten billion dollars. Billion? Ten billion dollars. Because each one of these pieces of equipment is maybe five million dollars. That's a lot of millions of dollars.
2: CHIPS DIFFER IN SIZE AND SOPHISTICATION, DEPENDING ON THEIR END USE. INTEL DOESN'T PRESENTLY MAKE MANY CHIPS FOR THE AUTO SECTOR, BUT BECAUSE OF THE SHORTAGE, IT'S PLANNING TO RECONFIGURE SOME OF ITS fabs TO START CHURNING THEM OUT. I'M WONDERING IF WE'RE GOING TO CONTINUE TO HAVE SHORTAGES, NOT JUST IN CARS, BUT IN OUR PHONES AND FOR OUR COMPUTERS, FOR EVERYTHING.
3: I THINK WE HAVE A COUPLE OF YEARS UNTIL WE CATCH UP TO THE SURGING DEMAND across every aspect of the business.
2: COVID showed that the global supply chain of chips is fragile and unable to react quickly to changes in demand. One reason, fabs are wildly expensive to build, furbish, and maintain. It used to be that there were 25 companies in the world that made the high-end, cutting-edge chips, and now there are only three. And in the United States, you. Yeah. One. One. Today, 75% of semiconductor manufacturing is in Asia.
3: 25 years ago, the United States produced 37% of the world's semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S. Today, that number has declined to just 12%.
2: Doesn't sound good.
3: It doesn't sound good. And anybody who looks at supply chain says... That's a problem.
2: Well, but look at what's going on. A problem, because relying on one region, especially one as unpredictable as Asia, is highly risky. Intel has been lobbying the U.S. government to help revive chip manufacturing at home with incentives, subsidies, and or tax breaks, the way the governments of Taiwan, Singapore, and Israel have done. The White House is responding, proposing $50 billion for the semiconductor industry in the U.S. as part of President Biden's infrastructure plan. This is infrastructure. Your business is extremely lucrative. In terms of revenue, you made $78 billion last year. Why should the government come in to a company, a business that's doing so well overall?
3: This is a big, critical industry and we want more of it on American soil. The jobs that we want in America, the control of our long-term technology future, and as we've also said, the disruptions in the supply chain.
2: You have spent much more in stock buybacks than you have in research and development, a lot more.
3: We will not be anywhere near as focused on buybacks Uh, going forward as we have in the past and that's been reviewed as part of my coming into the company agreed upon with the board of directors
2: why shouldn't private industry fund this instead of the government the industries that rely on these chips Apple Microsoft the companies that are rolling in money well
3: they're pretty happy to buy from uh, some of the Asian suppliers
2: actually they don't always have a choice For chips with the tiniest transistors, there's no made-in-the-U.S. option. Intel currently doesn't have the know-how to manufacture the most advanced chips that Apple and the others need. The decline in this industry, it's kind of devastating, isn't it?
3: The fact that this industry was created by American innovation.
2: The whole Silicon Valley idea started with Intel.
3: Yeah. You know, the, the company stumbled. You know, it's still a big company. We had some product stumbles, some manufacturing and process stumbles.
2: Perhaps the biggest stumble was in the early 2000s when Steve Jobs of Apple needed chips for a new idea, the iPhone. Intel wasn't interested, and Apple went to Asia, eventually finding TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, Today, the world's most advanced chip manufacturer producing chips that are 30% faster and more powerful than Intel's. They're ahead of you on the manufacturing side, Yeah, considerably ahead of you.
3: We believe it's going to take us a couple of years and we will be caught up.
2: Gelsinger is making big bets, breaking ground on two new giant fabs in Arizona, costing $20 billion, Intel's largest investment ever. And he announced in May a $3.5 billion upgrade of this fab in New Mexico. But TSMC is a manufacturing juggernaut worth over a half trillion dollars. Collaborating with clients to produce their chip designs, it's been sought out by Apple, Amazon, contractors for the U.S. military, and even Intel which uses TSMC to produce its cutting edge designs, they're not advanced enough to make themselves. How and why did Intel fall behind?
9: It is surprising for us too.
2: We spoke remotely with TSMC chairman Mark Liu at the company headquarters in Shinshu, Taiwan. His company is a leading supplier of the chips that go into American cars. In March, 2020, As COVID paralyzed the U.S., car sales tumbled, leading automakers to cancel their chip orders. So TSMC stopped making them. That's why when car sales unexpectedly bounced back late last year, there was a shortage of chips, leaving cars with no power parked in car makers' lots, costing them billions.
9: We heard about this shortage in uh, December timeframe. And in January, we try to squeeze as more chip as possible to the car company. In car chips, particularly, the supply chain is long and complex. This supply takes about seven to eight months.
2: Should Americans be concerned that most chips are being manufactured in Asia today?
9: I understand their concern, first of all, but this is not about Asia or not Asia. I mean, the shortage will happen no matter where the production is located because it's due to the COVID.
2: But um, Pat Gelsinger at Intel talks about a need to rebalance the supply chain issue, because so much, so many of the chips in the world now are made in Asia.
9: I think U.S. ought to pursue to run faster, to invest in R&D, to produce more PhD, master, bachelor students, to get into this manufacturing field instead of uh, trying to move the supply chain, which is very costly and really not produ- non-productive. That will slow down the innovation because uh, people are trying to hold on their uh, technology to their own and forsake the, the global collaboration.
2: Within the world of global collaboration, there's intense competition. Days after Intel announced spending $20 billion on two new fabs, TSMC announced it would spend $100 billion over three years on R&D, upgrades, and a new fab in Phoenix, Arizona, Intel's backyard, where the Taiwanese company will produce the chips Apple needs, but the Americans can't make. That was a big investment. But there's a looming shadow over TSMC, which supplies chips for our cars, iPhones, and the supercomputer managing our nuclear stockpile. China's President Xi Jinping, who has intensified his longtime threat to seize Taiwan. China's attempts to develop its own advanced chip industry have failed, and so it's been forced to import chips. But last year, Washington imposed restrictions on chip makers from exporting certain semiconductors to China both Lou and Gelsinger fear the escalating trade war with China may backfire, and an in Intel's case, could hurt business. Are they your biggest customer?
3: Uh, China is one of our largest markets today. You know, over 25% of our revenue is to Chinese uh, customers. You know, we expect that this will remain an area of tension and one that needs to be navigated uh, carefully because if there's any points that people can't keep running their countries or running their businesses, because of supply of one critical component like semiconductors, boy, that leads them to take very extreme postures on things, because
2: they have to. The most extreme would be China invading Taiwan and in the process gaining control of TSMC. That could force the U.S. to defend Taiwan, as we did Kuwait from the Iraqis 30 years ago. Then it was oil. Now it's chips. The chip industry in Taiwan has been called the Silicon Shield. Yes. What does that mean?
9: That means the world all needs Taiwan's high-tech industry support. So they will not let the war happen in this region because it goes against interest of every country in the world.
2: Do you think that in any way your industry is, is keeping... Taiwan safe?
9: I cannot comment on the safety. I mean, this is a changing world. Nobody wants these things to happen, and I hope I hope not too, either.
2: Despite the global push to ramp up production, the news is still grim. Some industry leaders and analysts expect the shortage to last deep into 2022 or even 2023.
1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
5: Earlier this summer, the Director of National Intelligence and Secretary of Defense released a highly anticipated, unclassified report about something the Pentagon calls Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP, more commonly known as UFOs. The government's grudging acknowledgement of 144 mysterious sightings documented by our military comes after decades of public denial. But as we first reported in May, whatever is trespassing in our skies and seas poses a serious safety risk to our servicemen and women as well as our national security. So what you're telling me is that UFOs, unidentified, flying objects,
10: are real. Bill, I think we're beyond that already. The government has already stated
5: for the record that they're real. I'm not telling you that. The United States government is telling you that. Luis Elizondo spent 20 years running military intelligence operations worldwide in Afghanistan, the Middle East, and Guantanamo. He hadn't given UFOs a second thought until 2008. That's when he was asked to join something at the Pentagon called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program,
10: or ATIP. The mission of ATIP was quite simple. It was to collect and analyze information involving anomalous uh, aerial vehicles, uh, what I guess in the vernacular you, you call them UFOs. We call them UAPs.
5: You know how this sounds. It sounds nutty, wacky. Look,
10: Bill, I, I'm, not, I'm not telling you that, that it doesn't sound wacky. What I'm telling you is real. The question is what is it? What
5: are its intentions? What are its capabilities? Buried away in the Pentagon, ATIP was part of a $22 million program sponsored by then Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid to investigate UFOs. When Elizondo took over in 2010, he focused on the national security implications of unidentified aerial phenomena documented by U.S. service members.
10: Imagine a technology that can do Six to seven hundred g forces that can fly at 13,000 miles an hour, that uh, it can evade radar, and that can fly through air and water and possibly space. And oh, by the way, has no obvious signs of propulsion, no wings, no control surfaces, and yet still can defy the natural effects of Earth's gravity. That's precisely what we're seeing.
5: Elizondo tells us ATIP was a loose knit mix of scientists, electro optical engineers, avionics and intelligence experts often working part-time. They combed through data and records and analyzed videos like this. A Navy aircrew struggles to lock onto a fast-moving object off the U.S. Atlantic coast in 2015. Recently released images may not convince UFO skeptics, but the Pentagon admits it doesn't know what in the world this is. Or this. Or this. So what do you say to the skeptics? It's refracted light. Uh, Weather balloons. A rocket being launched. Venus. In some cases, there are, are simple
10: explanations for what people are witnessing. But there are some that that are not. We're not just simply jumping to a conclusion that's saying, oh, that's a UAP out there. We're going through our due diligence. Is it some sort of new type of cruise missile technology that China has developed? Is it some sort of high-altitude balloon that's conducting reconnaissance? Ultimately, when you have exhausted all those what-ifs and you're still left with, with the fact that this is in our airspace and it's real, that's when it becomes
5: compelling and that's when it becomes problematic. Former Navy pilot Lieutenant Ryan Graves calls whatever is out there a security risk. He told us his F-18 squadron began seeing UAPs hovering over restricted airspace southeast of Virginia Beach in 2014 when they updated their jet's radar, making it possible to zero in with infrared targeting cameras. So you're seeing it both with the radar and with the infrared, and that tells you that there is... Something out there.
6: Pretty hard to spoof that.
5: These photographs were taken in 2019 in the same area. The Pentagon confirms these are images of objects it can't identify. Lieutenant Graves told us pilots training off the Atlantic Coast see things like that all the time.
6: Every day, every day for at least a couple of years. Um, hey, wait
5: a minute! Every day for a couple of years? Mm-hmm.
6: You know, I don't see an exhaust plume.
5: Including this one, off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida in 2015, captured on a targeting camera by members of Graves Squadron.
4: It's rotating. My gosh! They're going against the wind. The wind's 120
0: miles west.
6: You can sort of hear the surprise in their voices. You certainly can. They seem to have broke character a bit. Uh, and we're just kind of amazed at what they were seeing.
5: What do you think when you see something like this?
6: This is a difficult one to explain. You have rotation, you have high altitudes, you have propulsion, right? I don't know. I don't know what it is, frankly.
5: He told us pilots speculate they are one of three things. Secret U.S. technology, an adversary spy vehicle, or something otherworldly.
6: I would say, you know, the highest probability is it's a threat observation program.
5: Could it be Russian or Chinese technology?
6: I don't see why not.
5: Are you alarmed?
6: I, I am worried, uh, frankly. You know, if these were tactical jets from another country that were hanging out up there, it would be a massive issue. But because it looks slightly different, we're not willing to actually look at the problem in the face. Uh, we're, we're happy to just ignore the fact that these are out there watching us every day.
5: The government has ignored it, at least publicly, since closing its Project Blue Book investigation in 1969, But that began to change after an incident off Southern California in 2004, which was documented by radar, by camera, and four naval aviators. We spoke to two of them, David Fravor, a graduate of the Top Gun Naval Flight School and commander of the F-18 squadron on the USS Nimitz, and flying at his wing, Lieutenant Alex Dietrich, who has never spoken publicly about the encounter.
11: I never wanted to be on national TV. (laughs) <laughs> no offense.
5: So why are you doing this?
11: Because I was in a government aircraft, because I was on the clock, and so I feel a responsibility to to share what I can, and it is unclassified.
5: It was November 2004, and the USS Nimitz Carrier Strike Group was training about 100 miles southwest of San Diego. For a week, the advanced new radar on a nearby ship, the USS Princeton, had detected what operators called multiple anomalous aerial vehicles over the horizon, descending 80,000 feet in less than a second. On November 14th, Fravor and Dietrich, each with a weapons system officer in the back seat, were diverted to investigate. They found an area of roiling white water the size of a 737 in an otherwise calm blue sea. So as we're looking at
12: this, her backseater says, hey, Skipper, do you? And about that got out. I said, dude, do you, do you see that thing down there? And we saw this little white tic-tac-looking object, and it's just kind of moving above the whitewater area. As Dietrich enemy,
5: circled above, like a... Fravor went in just for just a closer her. look. So sort of
12: spiraling yep. down? The tic tac still pointing north-south. It goes, and just turns abruptly and starts mirroring me. So as I'm coming down, it starts coming up
5: so it's it 's mimicking your moves, yeah, it was aware we were there. He said it was about the size of his f eighteen with no markings, no wings, no exhaust plumes' right to,
12: I'll see how close I can get, so I go like this and it 's climbing still, and when it gets right in front of me, it just disappears, disappears disappears like gone.
5: it had sped off what are you thinking
11: so your your mind tries to make sense of it i 'm going to categorize this as maybe a helicopter or maybe a drone. And when it disappeared, I mean, it was just...
5: Did your backseaters see this too?
11: Yeah.
12: Oh, yeah. There was four of us in the airplanes literally watching this thing for
5: roughly about five minutes. Seconds later, the Princeton reacquired the target, 60 miles away. Another crew managed to briefly lock onto it with a targeting camera before it zipped off again.
11: You know, I think that over beers, we've sort of said, hey, man, if I saw this... A solo. I don't know that I would have come back and said anything because it sounds so crazy when I say it.
5: You understand that reaction?
12: I do. you have had some people tell me, you know, when you say that you can sound crazy and what? I'll be honest, I'm not a UFO guy.
5: But from what I hear you guys saying, there's something.
12: Yes. Oh, There's, there's definitely something that, I don't know who's building it, who's got the technology, who's got the brains, but there's, there's
5: something out there that was in our airplane. The air crew filed reports. Then, like the mysterious flying object, the Nimitz encounter disappeared. Nothing was said or done officially for five years, until Lou Elizondo came across the story and investigated.
10: We spend millions of dollars in training these, these pilots, and they are seeing something that they can't explain. Furthermore, That information's being backed up on electro-optical
5: data, like gun camera footage, and by radar data. Now, to me, that's compelling. Inside the Pentagon, his findings were met with skepticism. ATIP's funding was eliminated in 2012, but Elizondo says he and a handful of others kept the mission alive until finally, frustrated, he quit the Pentagon in 2017, but not before getting these three videos declassified. And then things took a stranger turn.
3: I tried to help my colleague, Lou Elizondo, elevate the issue in the department and actually get it to the Secretary of Defense.
5: Christopher Mellon served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush, and had access to top-secret government programs.
3: So it's not us. That's one thing we know. We know that. I can say that with a very high degree of confidence, in part because of the positions I held in the department And I know the process.
5: Mellon says he grew concerned nothing was being done about UAPs, so he decided to do something. In 2017, as a private citizen, he surreptitiously acquired the three Navy videos Elizondo had declassified and leaked them to The New York Times.
3: It's bizarre and unfortunate that someone like myself has to do something like that to get a national security issue like this on the agenda.
5: He joined forces with now-civilian Lou Elizondo, and they started to tell their story to anybody who would listen, to newspapers, the History Channel, to members of Congress.
3: We knew and understood that you had to go to the public, get the public interested to get Congress interested, to then circle back to the Defense Department and get them to start taking a look at it.
5: And now it is. Last year, the Pentagon resurrected A-TIP. It's now called the UAP Task Force. Service members now are encouraged to report strange encounters, and the Senate wants answers. Anything that enters an airspace that's not supposed to be there is a threat. After receiving classified briefings on UAPs, Senator Marco Rubio called for a detailed analysis. This past December, while he was still head of the Intelligence Committee, he asked the Director of National Intelligence and the Pentagon to present Congress an unclassified report by next month. This is a bizarre issue. The Pentagon and other branches of the military have a long history of sort of dismissing this. What makes you think that this time's gonna be different?
10: I mean, we're gonna find out when we get that report. You know, there's a stigma on Capitol Hill. I mean, some of my colleagues are very interested in this topic and some kind of, you know, giggle when you, when you bring it up. But I I don't think we can allow the stigma to keep us from having an answer to a very fundamental question.
5: What do you want us to do about this?
10: I want us to take it seriously and have a process to take it seriously. I want us to have a process to analyze the data every time it comes in. That there be a place where this is cataloged and constantly analyzed until we get some answers. Maybe it has a very simple answer. Um, Maybe it doesn't.
5: A few weeks after our story aired, the Director of National Intelligence released an unclassified report saying UAP probably lack a single explanation, but that some, quote, appear to demonstrate advanced technology meriting further analysis.
7: If you are looking for strength and character in the nation's capital these days, look no further than the story of Alex Smith. Nearly three years ago, the Washington quarterback suffered a crippling injury that almost led to the amputation of his right leg. It would have been a brutal end to the long career of a man who was once the first overall draft pick in the NFL and a three-time pro bowler. Instead, as we first reported last January, Smith defied expectations by rehabbing the way injured special forces do. Tonight, a look back at one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. It all began on November 18th, 2018, when Alex Smith led Washington as quarterback against the Houston Texans. And pass rushers Kareem Jackson and J.J. Watt crashed through his offensive line.
13: It was one of those plays as a quarterback, you know, okay, they got us, you know, secure the football and, and just kind of get down. And there goes Alex Smith down at the 40-yard line. Alex Smith is down. Oh. I immediately knew that it was broken.
7: You could see it or you felt it.
13: The visual was the most alarming thing for me to look down and know that my leg was broken. It wasn't straight, uh, bending in a place it shouldn't bend.
8: Alex isn't a guy who goes down a lot. He, you know, I had never run on the field for him.
7: Dr. Robin West was the Washington football team's head physician. Last season was her 18th in the NFL.
8: And I realized quickly that the injury was, was severe when I got out there. Just so that people understand, what is a compound spiral fracture? He had a fracture that extended from his ankle joint up to his knee joint, so it spiraled all the way up the tibia, and then he had a piece of bone sticking out of his skin. How often do injuries like this happen in football? Like this? No. Very, very rarely.
7: <laughs> After watching from the stands, Alex Smith's wife, Elizabeth, rushed down to be with her husband. Do you remember what he said to you in the ambulance? Yes.
11: Yes. He wanted me to pull the game up on my phone. He wanted to know the score. He wanted to know how the offense was doing. He was not even worried about his leg whatsoever. He was worried about his team.
7: A team of orthopedic trauma surgeons was waiting to operate at a Nova Fairfax hospital in Virginia. They put Smith's leg back together with three plates and 28 screws and pins. After surgery, the x-rays looked good. But what Dr. West and her colleagues could not see was bacteria she thinks from Washington's football field had infected the open wound on Smith's leg.
13: There in those couple days after is when it, it, you know, quickly, quickly got sideways.
11: His blood pressure was dropping, his fever was skyrocketing, and that's when I knew it was a lot worse than we ever anticipated.
7: Not many diagnoses sound worse than necrotizing fasciitis, more commonly known as flesh-eating bacteria. As the infection ravaged Smith's leg, his body reacted by developing stage 2 sepsis, a dangerous condition that can damage organs and lead to death. And his infection just keeps getting worse. What's going through your mind?
11: I'm obviously more worried about his life. He is septic, and, you know, you hear all these staggering numbers on when people go septic.
7: At one point, Elizabeth Smith asked to speak to Dr. West privately. His medical team was already considering
8: the amputation of her husband's right leg. She said, just, just get rid of it. I just want him to live and walk out of here. So and we talked to his family and his father, had a similar view. And then we went to Alex, but he said, do what you can to save my leg. Do anything you can to save it.
7: Smith underwent eight operations in 10 days to carefully remove all
8: the dead or infected tissue. What did Alex Smith's leg look like? Bone, basically. All he had was his calf muscle and his tibia and his fibula.
13: We were in the hospital approximately a month. Uh, they had to remove quite a bit of muscle and tissue from my lower leg in order to, to get the infection under control. And then faced with the reality that, hey, we, you know, we, we still might have to cut off your leg. And uh, for me, that, uh, to hear those words, uh, hard to deal with as a professional athlete and someone that really, I, I mean, I think I took that for granted for so long, my body, my health.
7: Yeah. The most basic thing people yeah. take for granted. Yeah, yeah, no
13: doubt. Just wondering, like, I mean, would I ever be able to go on walks with my wife? Would I ever be able to play with my kids? Uh, crazy reality. And uh, so, yeah, really, really thankful to be here.
7: Surgeons covered Smith's bones so they would heal, partly by removing a portion of his left thigh muscle and placing it on his lower right leg. You yeah, got this.
11: How's that feel?
13: I'm afraid to put too much
7: weight on it. His leg was also fitted with a piece of hardware called an external fixator.
13: It looks medieval, but it's really advanced orthopedics, and so I wear this metal cage that's bolted in and pinned into my leg, and it holds my leg and bone in place uh, while it heals.
7: And how long did you have to wear the fixator?
13: Yeah, it was almost 10 months. I wore this, bolted in my legs. It was a, a long process.
7: The Center for the Intrepid in San Antonio was specifically built to help wounded warriors through that process. Dr. West reached out to her friend, Johnny Owens, who for 10 years had been the center's chief physical therapist. Had you seen a lot of injuries that were similar to what Alex had?
10: I have. That was the hallmark injury of, of the wars, was these lower leg injuries from blast traumas, um, stepping on landmines.
7: Smith requested and received special permission from the Pentagon to visit and consult with the Center for the Intrepid staff.
10: We saw hundreds of Alex Smiths come through this door with those type of injuries and, and said, you're going to be able to run, you're going to be able to do all these type of things that, that people told you you weren't going to be able to do.
14: Now I'm going to have you push down on the gas pedal for me.
7: Dr. Joe Alderetti is a West Point graduate and chief of orthopedic reconstructive surgery at the center.
14: From the moment we, we met, you could tell in the look behind his eyes that can be so many of my patients, either blast injury, roadside bomb, cancer. That look is binary. It's you will succeed or you will fail and Alex had the look of success. Everything's stable here. There you turn go, down, Alex. Turn, turn, turn.
7: During Smith's first trip to the center for the Intrepid, just a few months after his injury, the ESPN program, E60, recorded a major milestone in his recovery.
13: First throw since November 18th.
7: What happened when you tossed Alex a football for the first time?
10: Two things, he almost um, broke my ribs because I didn't catch the ball right, and second, there was, there was I, that spark in his eye. It, it was so cool. I think it was well, like a light bulb
13: went off.
7: Smith says he was humbled and inspired to be around service members, some with injuries similar to his own, who were not only running but
13: returning to duty. The rest of the world was telling me, Temp, yeah, go be happy with the rest of your life, and and hopefully you save your leg, and, and that'd be great, and, you know, whatever's you can do beyond that is, is, a, is a icing on the cake. And that was not the mentality down there. At that the was, center ex- front that was the exact opposite, that it's okay to dream about playing again. It was okay for those servicemen and women if they wanted to go back and try and serve and to do triathlons and, and, and be elite, to go chase it. And that-
7: No mental limitations.
13: No, no.
7: <laughs> Through thousands of hours of physical therapy, and with the help of various braces and orthotics, Smith would relearn to walk, then run, and eventually move like a quarterback again, sometimes with the help of his wife, Elizabeth. Alex Smith first threw a football as a toddler. He says he always wanted to be a quarterback, and despite being recruited by Harvard and Princeton, Alex Smith chose to play football at the University of Utah.
9: The San Francisco 49ers select Alex Smith,
4: quarterback, Utah.
7: After being selected by the 49ers as the first overall pick in the 2005 draft, ahead of quarterback Aaron Rodgers, Smith struggled with injuries and consistency. But after a move to Kansas City in 2013, played the best football of his career. Then the team drafted a young quarterback from Texas Tech. What's the name of that guy again who replaced you at Kansas City?
13: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard of him. Um, pretty good player.
7: Patrick Mahomes was the MVP of Super Bowl 54, but spent 2017 as Alex Smith's backup and understudy.
14: And, and he didn't hold anything back from me. I mean, he, he taught me that's just the type of person he was and that he is, and I, I attribute a lot of my success to him.
13: I think the thing that jumps out to me, uh, from our relationship is from day one, the mutual respect. And, and I think just, you know, what a good person he was.
7: How did you mentor
13: him? I was gonna be a good teammate. I wasn't gonna be selfish. You know, I, I signed up to play a team sport and, and uh was gonna do my part.
7: Last summer at the age of 36, after 17 surgeries and 20 months out of the game, Alex Smith was medically cleared to rejoin the Washington football team, despite the fact that his tibia bone was not yet 100% healed. But after everything that you've gone through, why would you risk it?
13: I'm not crazy. I I wasn't going to do this if I didn't, you know, obviously hear from the experts. And so to hear finally from the experts that, okay, you can. For me, a bit of a gut check, you know, do I really want to do this? Do I put myself out there or walk across those white lines potentially again? in live action.
7: Exhilarating or nerve-wracking? Both. He wouldn't actually play in a game until week five when the starting quarterback got hurt against the Los Angeles Rams. What did say? Three plays in, Smith was sacked by all-pro tackle Aaron Donald. And then he got right back up. Watching on TV while deployed in Iraq was Dr. Joe Alderetti. I, I was so proud about it. <laughs> Sorry.
14: And, and all that he had achieved...
7: You were emotional then watching that.
14: I was. I was totally blown away. I didn't know whether I, w- I wanted to cheer or throw up. I it scared me to death, but I I just loved watching Alex achieve.
9: Up tall,
7: here we go. Dr. Alderetti says the only other patients he's seen achieve similar outcomes are the most elite U.S. Special Forces.
0: Nine-nine. So
7: you've worked with almost 1,000 limb salvage patients. How many have been able to get back to the type of functionality that Alex Smith has?
14: Less than a dozen. Alex is my capstone patient of somebody who absolutely knocked it out of the park.
7: Smith went on to record a 5 and one record as a starter. Washington beat arch-rivals the Cowboys on Thanksgiving Day, and in their next game, ruined the Steelers' undefeated season.
1: I want to resist from your heel.
7: The day after he helped Washington clinch the NFC East and a spot in the playoffs, Smith was sore and needed some physical therapy. He had missed the prior two games because of a bone bruise. On, yes, his salvaged right leg. Does that feel like pain at that spot? Yeah. Washington's coaches kept him out of the playoff matchup against Tom Brady and Tampa Bay which won the game. Afterwards, the greatest of all time made it a point to pay his respects to the triumph of Alex Smith's comeback.
13: Hey, I'm so proud of you, bro. Unbelievable, you know that?
7: And despite the end of his season, the comeback might not have been over.
13: This year is, is only emboldened um, for me that I can, you know, play at this level. I feel like I've had a lot of people reach out to me uh, saying they feel like my mom. you know, when I'm playing and how concerned they are for me. Uh, uh.
11: I understand people's apprehension. I have the same apprehensions, but I think it's bigger than football. So I tell people it's not about the game. It's about what happened and getting back on your feet and dusting yourself off, no matter what the obstacle is.
7: This past offseason, Alex Smith made the difficult decision to retire from the NFL, but he's not done with the game. This season, he will work as a football analyst for ESPN.
5: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
8: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
6: I could stay here forever.
8: Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
2: I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.
0: If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew
3: that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.